Welcome to A State of Mind Podcast. This is your host, Julian Ocean. For today's episode, I'm speaking with Scott Tusa. Scott is someone that I met on a meditation retreat, actually a few different meditation retreats in the past. And he was ordained as a Buddhist monk by the Dalai Lama about nine years ago. And since then, decided to stop being a monk, but continues to teach meditation, help people on their spiritual journey. Scott is also a musician. We get to hear about his life and his journey and some insights and discoveries that he has had. We discussed some differences between pre-modern and contemporary societies, and we talk about the role of psychological work in the spiritual path. Um, For example, in traditional Buddhism, when we read the life stories of past meditators, great masters, we don't really read about them doing a lot of psychological work or healing in relationships. This doesn't mean it wasn't a part of their path, but the language and culture was so different than our contemporary world in the context in which these kinds of things were talked about is different. So we talk about some of these differences and we talk about the question of evolution and how things change and what progress can mean, both on an individual level and on the level of our society. And I articulate a little bit about the difference between pre-modern understandings, such as those found in traditional Buddhist teachings and modern scientific enlightenment, which very much does see us as making progress as a society And Scott expresses some doubt about this, that we're really progressing in a deeper sense, since we're still struggling with the same mental poisons today that we were 3,000 years ago, or for as long as humans have been around, the same kind of mental issues like jealousy and anger and suffering. So it's an open question if the dynamics, the way our mind really works on a fundamental level has changed that much, but certainly our society and culture has. The sound quality isn't as great as I would like it to be, so I apologize for that. And I'm having Scott on for round two, where we are planning to delve deeper into the question of how we can establish what's really true in our collective world. Something like facts, like what's really happening? How do we have collective agreements around what is true and what's not true, just on a very conventional relative sense? So I'm looking forward to that. And for now, I bring you Scott Tusa, part one. I'm here today with Scott Tusa. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, and I we have met several times at on meditation retreats with Sokini Rinpoche. Yep, and I think we've known each other over like eight years or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. when I first met you, you were uh, a monk, I think. Yeah, I was a monk from uh, 2008 to 2017. Cool, yeah. I guess I want to hear a little bit about your life. I usually ask people about their journey and how they got to where they are. And you have an sure. unusual backstory where you, you went really deep with Buddhism. And I mean, it's still a big part of your life, obviously, but in a different form, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, so how did I say? So basically, I mean, I, um, I was a musician my whole life. I grew up uh, around jazz, and my dad is a, uh, a jazz bass player. Oh. And so that was my dharma. <laughs> that was my spiritual <laughs> path uh, most of my teenage years. And then uh, I ended up going to uh, Berkeley College of Music uh, mm. for undergrad in, in Boston. and. Uh, to explore that as a you know professional career, uh, being a, a drummer, a percussionist, and it was there that I kind of contacted into um, like a asana and hatha yoga scene, and then eventually uh, meditation. And you know, as I kind of checked out different meditation uh, traditions, mostly started with like Yogananda's book is kind of what blew me open the autobiography of a yogi. Yeah, um, that's what was my initial like oh my God, there's people like this that exist or existed, right? <laughs> and uh, and that, it just opened up a whole world to me on what our human capacity is. Um, and then shortly after that, uh, started to get interested in Buddhism. I think I read um, one of Joseph Goldstein's books. Um, which one is this? Insight Meditation, I think. Oh, yeah. It's called that, yeah. I think. I can't remember, but it's one of his earlier books. And then uh, eventually came into contact with the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and just was floored. I couldn't believe there was such a descriptive and in my opinion, accurate way of it describing the human mind 
the world to a certain degree and why things happen. And it just, I think it, it brought some meaning to my life. And um, mm. that's when my dharma switched from music dharma to <laughs> Buddhist dharma. <laughs> that's cool. I didn't know you were a musician. Yeah, I still am. I don't play that much anymore. <laughs> I'll sit in with my dad on his gigs sometimes. Um, I made a lot of electronic music over the years. So that was a way to kind of mm. <laughs> like stay Buddhist and, and, and kind of, I don't know. I shouldn't say it that way, but you know, it was like a way to, you know, I didn't have to be in bands and, and kind of out there. I could kind of right. like, cause I got a little bit sick of, of touring and, and gigging in that way. Cause it's, it's just a different lifestyle. Um, mm. not a bad one, just different, but yeah. So, so that's how I kind of got into it. And so around uh, 1999 year 2000, I started to meet, um, Tibetan teachers first, uh, I, I met my first root teacher, Lama Zopa Rinpoche, and connected with his oh. organization called the uh, FPMT. Yeah, I've heard of that. Well, that's interesting. My, my dad's a musician too. So I grew up oh, yeah? on music, and I think you're a few years older than me. So Yeah, I'm, I'm 39. We have some, some parallels in our life journey, because <laughs> I've kind of been re, rediscovering nice. music lately. Ah. But, um, like playing music? Like rediscovering playing it? or. Playing it and recording it and messing around with electronic music. Nice, man. Yeah. Nice. We'll have to trade some, uh, some tips. <laughs> yeah. and tip. um, what does your dad play? Uh, my dad plays all kinds of stuff, but he's, he plays jazz and he'll do uh, all kinds of different music. Sweet, sweet. Like he'll, play at, he'll play at weddings and restaurants and shows. And... But anyway, um, so you discovered like that book autobiography of a yogi that's that's often like a, a book that people will discover and get them on the path of meditation and did yeah. you have skepticism at that time or were you more just kind of open to to it no i mean i was i think my issue over the years has been to uh you know to work with not quickly grabbing onto belief so much like to work with with you know more open-ended open questions <laughs> not trying to land somewhere. So I think for my first 10 years of, of really exploring my spiritual paths, before that I explored other spiritual paths, mainly African religion um, through Afro-Cuban uh, and Afro-Brazilian huh. um, uh, uh, music. And, and that's another story. <laughs> that was like in my uh, like late high school years and going at a community college before I went to um, Berkeley. But, um, uh, but yeah, I think for me it was more like just, automatic kind of faith came in and of course i struggled with things after that and you know skepticism mm -hmm. came up over the years there's a sense of faith that this was like worth putting your time and energy into and yeah it was just like a click like a knowing like mm -hmm. just like okay I, I know this is is powerful and it and it wasn't yeah i think i was really attracted to the mystical at the beginning like the cities kind of stuff and the you know yogis and caves and all this kind of stuff right. um I think that was really attractive to me, but there was just something really intuitive that I knew was uh, meaningful, mm. you know? And yeah. so then when did you make the leap to becoming a monk? How did that? <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so I met Lama Zopram Shea around year 2000, 2001. I also met um, uh, a monk named Geshe Tsulga, who since huh. passed, um, who was a monk from Kham, who uh, 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 studied in Sarajay Monastery, he escaped India when he was 15 or 16, I think. And I'm sorry, escaped Tibet when he was 15 or 16. And actually uh, was one of the people who helped clear part of the jungle to rebuild the monastery, to oh, rebuild wow. the Sarah Monastery in India. And um, he was the resident teacher at a center called Kurukula in uh, Boston. And so I started just getting really connected there and started spending time with him in the afternoons. Um, they had like big statues that we you know, they fill with lots of holy objects and incense and rolled mantras. And I would go there to mm -hmm. roll mantras, uh, like mantras written on paper. We'd roll, you roll it up and, and then you put it inside the statue. Oh, cool. And where, where uh, was this? This was uh, in Boston. It was, it was near mm -hmm. uh, a place called Medford, Massachusetts. I was just right outside Boston. And, and he started cooking for me when I was there. And then he started teaching me how to cook Tibetan food. And his attendant, uh, who was a monk, left to move to New York or something. And, uh, and I just, I asked, like, can I become his cook? And, and then I moved into the center and uh, cooked for yeah. him. And, you know, he, he's in his 60s uh, when I met him. And um, just incredibly, you know, we see 
I just think it's it's rare, rarer and rarer, and I could be totally wrong on this, just to come across people who don't just have knowledge of something, they've really transformed their being and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, through a path and through, and in here I'm talking specifically about a spiritual path. And he was just like that. He was, he was incredibly profound and, and, and good teacher and had been a monk since he was like five or something like that, like for his whole life. Um, so I, so that really sparked, you know, a strong interest in becoming a monk. Though I think when I was reading Yogananda, I really wanted to be a monk. Mm. Um, there was a wish or sannyasin, you know, like a, 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 a renunciate yogi or whatever. And, um, and did you, I, did you eventually you went to Nepal or India? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was coming to getting to that slowly. I don't know how you want the shorter <laughs> medium or I'm not going to give you the long version, but yeah. So eventually, um, you know, I just kept studying with different teachers and, and going to, uh, uh, courses, workshops, empowerments, retreats, et cetera, doing my own retreats. And then. I became a recording engineer. Um, I moved back to California to San Francisco where I'm from uh, in around 2004 or five. And uh, I was a recording engineer, just recording bands, doing my Buddhist practice on the side and, and also, uh, you know, continuing to study with teachers in California and the Bay area. And I think around year 2007, uh, to answer your question, I, um, I just got a big, like shift. Like I just pictured myself dealing with, you know, no offense, but you know, like cranky, you know, bands <laughs> and very picky musicians. I had this one experience of a guy just getting completely trashed during our session. And it was like a waste of a whole day of tracking vocals. Cause he was just uh, so drunk. And it was like, yeah, I don't have that much judgment about it now, but at the time it was like, Oh wow. Do I want to be this old you know, kind of like engineer doing this my whole life. And, and I love recording engineering and, and producing music. So it's not a, anything against that. Um, it just was a life decision. And I was like, and, and I could see my Dharma practice, not really, uh, uh, I wasn't making as much progress or, or, or connecting with it as much as I would have liked. And so um, I just mm-hmm. got a really strong wish to become a monk. I'm going to go back a little bit though. But when yeah. I lived with Geshe-la, Geshe Tsulga, I was going to become a monk at, at oh. age 20 and, um, and it was pretty, and, and Lama Zoparimshe was, was, was on board, but he also was kind of, you know, you could also wait as kind of was seemed to be his underlying advice. And, um, so I decided to wait at that point, but I was going to just, you know, stop music school and just become a monk. But I, so I waited and, and had this life path in my early twenties in the music industry. Um, and then around age 26, 27, I just got a bug again and like just felt a big sadness around mm. continuing a life where Dharma wasn't my main focus and and it was always on the back burner and, you know, trying relationships, but things, you know, not working out at least mm. to, to what I wanted. And um, so, yeah, around 27, I just asked my teacher again, uh, Lama Zopramshe, and he said, yep, go do it. He gave me robes. He said, go, go, if you can try to take it with the Dalai Lama. So, uh. And this is a, a novice? Yeah. So I went to, in 2008, to India and took um, novice ordination. With, novice with, ordination. With the Dalai Lama. Yeah. yeah. I, I personally think it's, it would be a good idea to have, um, and I think this is the case in like Thailand and Southeast Asia where people take temporary ordination. Oh, I think I that's think, a great idea. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a Vinaya issue. Um, Vinaya being the um, monastic and uh, code. Uh, for, right. for Buddhist monks and nuns, um, where the so there's different Vinaya traditions coming from India, and so the the tradition that made its way to Tibet doesn't have a temporary ordination uh, mm. lineage, but you know in Southeast Asia they do, so yeah. that's why. But but some teachers are just trying it anyways. You can a lot of monks and nuns when they enter the monastery in in, in the Himalayan region, they just take. Um, Either Rabjung, which is kind of like you just take some entrance monastic vows, not fuller vows, or they might not even hold many vows at all. They just kind of are doing it as youth, and then at some point they'll take full ordination mm. if they stay on. So there right. is some ways they work around it culturally. I think it depends on the monastery and the teacher, but uh, just to put that out there. Yeah. No. Well, um, it was interesting when you were talking about your life and feeling like you wanted like you weren't making the progress you wanted with your Dharma practice. What, 
Can you say something about that? Like, what does progress mean? <laughs> <laughs> At the time, that's what I thought, you know? Yeah. And, and, then, and then I soon learned after I became a monk that any idea of what I think progress is, is, is you know, pretty full of shit and <laughs> let go of that. And of course, have an intention and continuing to unfold the path. But now I think of it much differently. I don't, I wouldn't really use the word progress now. Okay. Um, though I just did, but um, it was more like, I think how I thought of it in my late twenties. Yeah. But, no, I mean, I can relate to that a lot. Like when I, yeah, my twenties, I was like wanting to be really serious with meditation and make progress on this path. And maybe totally. similar to you, my understanding of what that means has changed a lot. Now that I'm older, it feels yeah. a lot more, um, it's a lot more of softening and opening rather than trying to get somewhere or achieve something. Uh, but I have heard some teachers talk about like, you know, put the time and energy into meditation and do a retreat. And you can like, like with shamatha practice, with concentration practice, you can reach certain milestones. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I haven't definitely. personally really done that to the degree that I think would be possible, but maybe one day I will. Yeah, I hope, I hope so. It seems like within <laughs> it seems like within the domain of concentration practice, you can have certain this a more linear notion of progress makes sense. Oh yeah, I mean there um, is linear. I think I think it's just um, there's like to me how I've found it to be, and and again I don't have any super deep experience, but it, it's like um, linear and the nonlinear, hmm. like the way they describe it in text. In my opinion, is just like a loose explanation of what. The, the the kind of ballpark of what you could be experiencing mm. but because uh, our our biology and and sort of makeup of our energy bodies and minds can be slightly different it can be slightly different for people and that's where i think you know you have all these gateways into the dharma which is so powerful and why i'm so passionate about um authentic lineage and, and buddhism is that they they, mm. they preserve those gateways mm. um not that those gateways can't shift but <clears throat> but you know, they also preserve them. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on. I see you as someone who really values the tradition and the history and the lineage and the culture. And yeah, you've uh, put in your time, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, sometime. Yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's something I'm constantly exploring and, 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 you know, it's, it's something that is so rich to me. And it's just this unfolding of the power of a holistic, a fuller picture of what we're doing with our practice. Cause as, as I'm sure, you know, like Buddhism is, is, is not just based off of meditation. It's based off of a view of what we're trying to uh, transform, come into grow, whatever you want to call it. Um, and the meditation is a way we bring that about. Right. Mm. And so to me, just even that uh, it's so, there's so much richness and, 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 I don't see Buddhism as a, as a very fixed, close thing anymore. I, I mean, there are principles that that make something Buddhist, in my opinion, and not Buddhist. Mm. Um, um, we can just discuss that if you want. My, my my sort of references on that reference points, but but either way, I, I do view it as much more open than I used to, in the sense that um, uh, there is a there's lineage and authenticity, and then there's our own experience that that's as that's developing. And so I feel like it's that constant. Uh, play of of learning to trust both mm. and, and not to go to one extreme over the other you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah 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 so i guess we're just getting the short version of your life but, here but, but often but eventually you know, <laughs> obviously at some point you decide to stop being a monk do you want to speak to that a little bit yeah so, or um, what the whole like how long were you wearing robes yeah, for? Yeah, I was in robes for nine years and uh, all, all novice ordination, which is, you know, um, mainly 35 precepts. And, you know, the main monk's vows are the same, uh, uh, celibacy, et cetera. And uh, let's see, I mean, you know, just to, to say something a little bit about it, because the way I, I ended up uh, deciding to move on from the Buddhist monastic life um, or to change back to more of a householder Buddhist life uh, has to do with the process of, of when I was a monk, because... Uh, uh, so, so my teacher, Lama Zopa, uh, he works in a little bit of a different way where uh, he doesn't have so many, I think, fixed ideas on what people should do or go where, where a new monk would generally just go to the monastery. That, that's what you do in Tibetan Buddhism. You, you don't, you go to the monastery and you study, you know, you enter a, you know, 
a graduated doctorate program in Buddhist philosophy. And then maybe you go and meditate after that. <laughs> and, uh, and he just said, nope, go to retreat. And there's a retreat center in California uh, on the central coast uh, in, in near Big Sur. So I spent three years in the mountains there oh, wow. and, and doing um, chunks of retreat in, in four month, three to four month periods over that three years. And I would come out to, to study. He told me, don't, don't only do retreat, come out and study as well. So you kind of have balance. And you also get to test. He didn't say this, but later I learned it's you also get to test your practice around people. Mm. Um, so you, you work alone and then you get to test it relationally uh, with mm. others. And then you go back and you work like that. So um, so the first three years was like that. And then, as you know, the, the next seven years, I moved to Crescent, Colorado under Sokni Rinpoche and and his um, retreat center, living at his house and, and continuing my practice there. Um, but to answer your question, you know, it was it was to me it's like it's very similar to like being married or to being in a relationship mm. in the sense that you know it's just the same it's the ups and downs of 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 relationality and in this case relating to my set my vows and to these sets of boundaries that i put up in order to look at my mind in order to look at what is going to cause suffering for me and what is going to cause uh, awakening or more well-being and um, right. I think that's a beautiful way to talk about it, you know, kind of simplifying your life and just looking at the causes of what creates greater happiness and what creates more suffering. And Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, and it, it, it took a while to come to that. I think it took about three years to, to realize that, I mean, three years of being a monk. The first three years were pretty tough. Then it got a little bit easier. Uh, and then, yeah, I think throughout it, you're always playing with the push and pull of uh, uh, the kleshas, you know, the disturbing emotions. and and of course, as a monk, for me personally, I don't know how it is for other monastic sexuality and how that shows up. And so it, it became a laboratory for me of working with those energies in a different way. Um, but I didn't have much like advice on how to do it, uh, unfortunately, a little bit, but um, from yeah. other monks. Well, I but, guess uh, it's, it's worth observing the, how unusual that is, you know, in our culture. Yeah. And day. I mean, if in the Tibetan culture, it's, it's a normal part of the culture, but here it's pretty, pretty rare. Yeah, exactly. And that was another part of some of the uh, challenges that eventually I think I succumbed to, which were just, you know, being such an odd duck in, <laughs> in, in a Western society where, where I didn't mind that most of the time, but I realized it was impacting my, my ability to relate to others. Mm. Not in and of itself, because I don't think, I think monks and nuns can be some of the best relators, you know, if they've worked that out. It was more my own emotional work that I had to do. So, I think towards like um, around the sixth year of being right after I met Sonia Rimshay, I started to realize, oh, there's a lot more relational wounding and early childhood issues than I thought there was. Like mm -hmm. I had this notion, yeah, I'm pretty much okay. Let's just, let's go straight into the path to awakening. and It'll be all good. And then Sonia Rimshay was like, uh, you know, who, who you know well and, and you study with, was like, mm, maybe you should take another look, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> And not only that, he also gave me permission to take another look. It was like, mm. I think I was pretty fixed on the path looking a certain way that, uh, or, you know, that, that Buddhism is my thing and I'm not going to go outside of that, which, which I'm not uh, necessarily that fixed anymore. But, um, but that, you know, I needed permission from someone like him to say, it's okay to like work with your emotions and to understand how to have more uh, a care and kindness for yeah. yourself. Well, it sounds right. like it makes me think of the realm more of psychology of what we think of as therapy, like early relational patterns and wounding and, and all this stuff totally. that we all have. And for many people, I mean, I now have, I'm now working as a therapist. So I, I have had my own journey with that where I kind of had to make a choice to put down, not put down, but like less, put less priority on some of my traditional Buddhist practice and focus mm -hmm. on therapy and psychology and learning that and wanting to do that as a job. Um, but it just seems, I mean, for many people, these two things go together. Your spiritual path and your psychological work are very much of one cloth. Totally. Uh, yeah. But if you're really in the kind of traditional frame of mind, you could see them as separate and you could be kind of skeptical, like what's the point of therapy or psychology? And yeah. And, and for that matter, if you're really in, you know, there's a lot of people who know a lot about psychology and have no love for religion of any kind, you know, and are very skeptical of Buddhism or anything else. So totally. Um, I think it's part of our modern world that we have more 
disciplines and distinctions between different domains. We've we've made a lot more, you know, politics and religion and even like even the distinction between reli- organized religion and spirituality. Like we're making all these different distinctions in a ways that in the past they weren't quite as separate. I, I completely agree with that. And that's part of my passion these days is to is to I- interrupt in myself, I'll start there, the nonlinearity and the either or thinking in myself and the mm-hmm. you know the the my tendency to be conditioned to black and white sort of thinking and, and <clears throat> boxes. And I've noticed definitely uh, my own path of healing, you know, I wouldn't call it capital T trauma, maybe, but definitely some lowercase traumas and relational wounding um, has made my path so much more integrated. Um, mm. And it's also helped me to understand the distinction between what we're talking about when we're talking about like, like awakening from a, a Buddhist perspective into, you know, recognition of the nature of mind and however we want to frame that or recognition of the nature of reality and, and then the path of healing. Cause I think these things also get confused. Yeah. And, and, um, and so, yeah, I, I completely agree there. It's, you know, the distinctions and the, the boxing around it into camps and, and all of this is um, it's part of our human nature to do that. But I think it's also very limiting and it's, and yeah. it's sort of coming from, the, the reification that's the cause of suffering in the first place, you know? Oh, interesting. I mean, it can be very helpful too. Oh yeah. It's, um, I mean, I had this, I have this question, maybe you can speak to this a little bit, but when I, like I got, you know, I went to India and Nepal and a lot of my romant, romanticizing of yeah. <laughs> monks and of Buddhist or yoga people or anyone like kind of was stripped away once you like actually live among them. <laughs> but totally there's, there's just, there's just been this sense that I used to have, and I no longer really believe, but that we here in the quote unquote West in America have all this psychological wounding yeah. well, in the more traditional East and everything was clean and beautiful and they have a lot less of it. So they can just go to the more <laughs> spiritual transcendence or spiritual practice. And we have to do a lot more psychological work. And I don't think that's totally true, but there may be something to the fact that in the past things were more simple and actual physical environment was certainly cleaner. There was less pollutants. The food they were eating was very simple. The lifestyle was very simple. So yeah, maybe, you know, but for sure there was definitely psychological issues going on. So I don't know. They just, they didn't, doesn't seem like traditionally in the East in a place like India or Tibet in the past, they had, you know, didn't have our modern understandings of psychology. And so trying to like think about those issues and understand them is, I don't have any answers. It's just something I've been thinking about a lot. Yeah, the same. I'm, I'm, I, I love this topic and I love reflecting on it and, and kind of inquiring into it and myself and talking to you and others about it. It's, um, yeah, I mean, I'm starting to really, I agree with you that it's not like, I mean, it's just one label and way to, and then of course, different frames of uh, psychological uh, mechanisms and techniques of working with the mind from a Western perspective. Uh, yeah, I don't think, you know, even though it might have a different label in, in older, pre, more pre-modern cultures and uh, uh, other cultures around the world. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, the Buddha describes, uh, you know, in the first noble truth, <laughs> you know, that, that dukkha, this sense of dissatisfaction or, or suffering is, is the nature of the world when we're not recognizing our own basic goodness and, and you know, inner awakened nature. And so that would imply to me that that includes psychological issues, right? And mm. maybe maybe just different cultures will frame that different ways, um, you know. But but yeah, I did want to make a point too, which is I, in, in my kind of exploration of this a little bit, and as as you, it's a continuing exploration. Um, there's also this notion. I, I think I think a big difference is a, a sense of community and belonging. Right. That, yeah. You know, w- was intact uh, in, in indigenous cultures for so long, and and is is still in a lot in a lot of you know indigenous cultures. But it's starting to fracture the more the modern world enters. Uh, from what I see, is starting to fracture that too. So, so mm-hmm. to me, I, I I think you know I don't want to simplify it because as you know, like usually these things are nuanced and complex, and there a lot of conditions are coming in and out. But that's one I'm I'm really focusing on right now, and myself and my teaching is is around belonging and. and yeah, me too. No, I think that's huge. I think that's yeah. giant. I think that we're very individualized and atomized now and separated. And um, we haven't really evolved to live that way. You know, we're very social creatures. Yeah, exactly. And so for thousands of years, we grew up in villages and we knew everyone there. And 
there was just a sense of clear, like you were given certain roles, you know, in pre-modern life that you would just then follow. Totally. And we have this kind of existential crisis of figuring out who I really am and what am I going to do and what are my passions and actually yeah. creates a lot of suffering for people because, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just looking at the time. Um, <laughs> I just think it creates a lot of suffering for people to try to live this perfect life that we yeah. are told from a very early age, you can live your dreams and you can have anything you want if you work hard enough at it. And, <laughs> Totally. And then it's like, who, who are you really? And it's like, it's not that easy to answer these. <laughs> oh, to, and what even a sense of solid, you know, solidness in that, like a healthy totally. sense of self. Yeah. What even frames a meaningful life like that? It, you know, if it's just given the question of like, oh, you can do anything you want materially. It, 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 it introduces the idea that that's what makes life meaningful. Right. Mm. Which is a false uh, uh, promise in my, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. Like meaning like, uh, you know, we're told, yeah, you can be, you can be the president if you want. And it's like, well, is that role as the president going to fulfill you and make your life meaningful as a human being? Maybe, but not necessarily, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like status, right? And, and these kinds of things. Uh, I wanted to, you know, it's a good point to go back to the story of, of how I came out of being a monk too, because I think, you know, to me, this was one of the, the key things as I started my healing path uh, within my Buddhist path, which to me, if we're already a traditional Buddhist, we could take on with an intention of bodhicitta. They don't have to be separate. And bodhicitta, for those of you listening who don't know it, the, the, the Sanskrit word uh, means awakened mind. Uh, and it has a, a relative form and an ultimate form. And it's a relative form. It's just this development of an altruistic wish that my freedom is interlinked with the freedom of all beings. And mm -hmm. we start to develop an intention that our path and what we do in our life and our practice and all of it is done in order to awaken for the benefit of others in order to help them awaken. And so, and so to me, like my healing path at some point, I just realized if I don't work on this, there's no way I'm going to be able to feel connected with others and to be able to show up for them authentically if I can't show up for myself. Mm. Um, and also I do think for me personally, at least there was some blocks to just meditation and some aspects of it that I couldn't get into until I really deeply uh, started to feel the body and relate to the body. Hmm. Um, so, which I, I think is common for a lot of people. So, so yeah, so I think on my path to, to deciding to leave the monastic life, part of it was like uh, a lot of isolation in, in my case where, you know, some of it, most of it was self-imposed, hmm. but um, some of it was external in the sense like, um, you know, you're kind of a, if you're living in the States and you're not living in a monastery, you're kind of on your own and kind of doing your thing. Right. Um, so I started to feel like I, I needed to grow in some other ways uh, in relationship and uh, in, in all kinds of relationships. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's great. And now, but you're still now you're working as a meditation teacher and speaker and yeah. So I, I, I'm you know I basically I was teaching. I started teaching actually in 2008 um, and when I became a monk, and then I started teaching a lot more uh, probably 2014, 15, and and it really started because you know me from retreats with Sonia Mache. So I, I, I guide meditation and lead review mm -hmm. sessions on his retreats. And I think that's been since 2012 or 2011. <clears throat> can't remember. And, um, and yeah, I, and so it just sort of continued because my last few years of a monk, I was, I was half the year in retreat or a little less and then half the year traveling and teaching. So I just kind of continued that. And I didn't know if it was going to end, if people would still want me to give dharma talks or or if i'd still want to do it but it just mm -hmm. continued and um and yeah now I'm, i have the and i consider it a privilege to be able to serve others uh through uh, uh dharma discussion uh, meditation yeah. that's beautiful and, yeah and i do stuff all around the world now and i work with people one-to-one -one. Oh, well, amazing because yeah. uh, <laughs> well one thing i want to ask you about is so can you has been teaching this path of healing and the path of like liberation or awakening that you just mentioned. Does that have any parallels with traditional teachings or is it a kind of a new yeah. development? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah. Um, sorry, cut out for some cut out for a moment. Um, yeah, I, I think, Hmm. It's a tough one because it is kind of a new development, but not really. Uh, I think it's just like a new way to address an old thing. Mm. 
So, so just like you were talking about psychological psychology being psychological issues and, and uh, being, you know, something that not only Western culture deals with uh, it's just that I don't, you know, other cultures have frameworks and ways of how they talk about these things and how they don't talk about these things also. Hmm. And generally you don't, from my understanding, I could be wrong. You don't really see the word healing within the Buddha's teaching so much. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> it is interesting. <laughs> um, and so a lot of Buddhist teachers, I think, are really resident, uh, uh, reticent to bring up healing because uh, our mind is so habituated towards materiality and towards fixing our, the problem. Hmm. The Buddhist path is really becomes an understanding eventually. I'm not saying the beginning. In the beginning, we do need to fix problems. I'll be really clear about that. But eventually, as we grow as a practitioner, we start to get really interested in actually going beyond a problem and solution paradigm. Hmm. And so when we start talking about healing, usually it starts to go into that category of, of kind of putting out fires rather than finding the cause of why these fires keep arising, right? Hmm. So that's why I think it traditionally gets a little bit uh, uh, ignored. And But I think f- from my understanding, and I can't speak for Sonia Rinpoche, I mean, I do on his retreats, but... but not, well, I never speak for him. I just kind of maybe will repeat something he said. But um, mm-hmm. so I can't speak for him here. But but I I feel he just sees a deep need, not just for Western culture, for for anyone who's kind of accessing a modern hyper materialist world, um, that there's there's a need to um, connect with the body, uh, connect with the emotions, um, to offer some at least the opportunity that there may be some disconnect there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, so it's not, I don't consider it an innovation. I think it's just like another a wording, like a, just a, a skillful means. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. 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 Um, yeah. There, and, and the techniques he uses, uh, you know, he's taken from Buddhist text. So it's not like, you know, he's not, he's not, you know, bringing in like Freudian <laughs> psychology or something. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it seems like we have, we as modern people have an extra need for embodiment. Like yeah. that we have become disassociated with our bodies in a way that maybe wasn't the case as much in the past. And yeah, just connecting with the body is a super powerful practice for so many people. I agree. And yeah. That's the emotions and then our mind and then bringing that into relationship and trying to have a, a way of being in the world that that's fully integrated. Yeah, exactly. And I think it goes back to my earlier comment about in our modern or postmodern age, we've separated out, we've made so many more categories and divisions. So we need, like part of what meditation practice for me is doing these days is just integrating. Like that's really the framework that I think about it in. Mm. Yeah. Starting to bring everything together, not not separate out as much or, or like see the distinctions, but also see the connections. You can have yeah. both, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. And I think sometimes for me, I, I find trouble even finding words for this because i think when the when the path becomes a little bit more embodied um and and we still use the buddhist framework i i want to say i think that's really important um mm-hmm. it, it to me it's it's still uh, within the four noble truths and and the four seals of buddhism and i could describe those for, for you know for, I, I think you know them but maybe the listeners don't um uh and 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 that's important uh to distinguish uh, uh, what the path we're traveling on is. But then there's this sense for me of, of that integration being such a wide open field. And, you know, I'm just, what I'm really enjoying lately, what's giving me a lot of uh, energy and juice is just open inquiry into everything in my yeah. life. And that doesn't mean I just do everything or go with everything. It just means how, how can I experience something without fixating so strongly on the experience in that moment or trying to categorize or box it in immediately with my analytical mind, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm just finding so much more joy in life and, and, and definitely more connection with people, you know? Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on the, like we mentioned belonging and community and I just spoke with uh, the director of the Boulder Shambhala community here uh, and, um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Like, how are you, like when I go on retreat, it's often I'll see, uh, like with the case of Sonia Michelle, I'll go on retreat and I'll see some of the same people year after year, but then I might not connect with them much in between. Mm, and it's yeah. just a sense of belonging to a lot of different communities, but, and maybe that's healthy. I think it is. Cause like, I think if you're too much in one community, it can become very insular and that's where like cult like dynamics can start to happen. And that can be 
can become unhealthy, but it's also like, I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out how to create and cultivate really, yeah, really good communities that were that do like have that sense of belonging and connection and also not asking too much of them, you know, because like the times that we get to spend together are limited. Like just seems like our reality today that I think in the past was like so different. I agree. And uh, honestly, um, I wouldn't say I'm struggling with this right now, but it's definitely a, I feel there is a rift uh, uh, on a societal wide scale. And I wouldn't say, it's like means there's a rift everywhere and I wouldn't, and I, and I don't want to generalize too strongly because it depends on the community, the place, the individual. Um, some people have figured this out. They, they kind of find their communities, uh, kind of what it sounds like you're, you're experimenting with. But, um, what I've noticed, uh, and I, I mean, again, it just connects into the spiritual path for me is, is, um, if I don't have room to feel connected to myself and to feel somewhat accepting and in relationship with what arises in my body and emotions, it really limits my ability to feel belonging on the outside. So again, it goes back to this sense of, of I call it hyper-individualism, uh, hyper-materialism, that just the, is the milieu we're, we're swimming in, in, in right. the modern world. And, um, and, and, and of course, this disconnects us from the body, it disconnects us from uh, uh, others, and it disconnects us from the earth. So, so yeah, I, I, I think... Sorry, I don't always mean to like go in all these directions, but to me, these are like, it's kind of nuanced. It's like, like, I think a lot of us are looking for the one answer to fix everything, but there's not, <laughs> you know, there's it's not one answer. Yeah. Cause it's interdependent. It's right. super complex. Um, it is really complex. I think, I think connecting like to our larger culture and society, just for a moment, it's like a lot of the debates and divisions and anger and all the partisan, whatever bickering has to do about belonging has to do about community people are feeling disconnected and they don't like that and i think that's where some of the anti-immigrant stuff is actually coming from like who who are we like who and within our country like there's different cultures that are so different that people are it's hard for people to i don't know feel like we're all one (laughs) to be well i say a cliche about it but yeah and i think uh i mean look how rapidly the world's changed in, in the last hundred years i mean just if we think about it in historical context, it's pretty unbelievable because, and, and to me, I mean, just from a Buddhist perspective, there's, there's inherent within uh, uh, self selfing and <laughs> self reification and what comes out of that and, and, and the disturbing emotions that, you know, anger and, and clinging that are, of course are, are fueling uh, divisions, but there's, there's also just on a relative level, just, becoming a global society is it's never i don't know if that's ever been yeah i don't think it's ever been done i haven't read about it in history before and so to me that strikes me as like wow no wonder there's so much you know uh conflict around it because you know to me it's like how did we find belonging before as human beings we found it more in tribes right 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 exactly um and and so in a way like uh, you know a trump supporter just to be really direct like they found their tribes so they have some mm. belonging there but the belonging is around uh, a divisionary, divisionary tactics, right? Right. Right. Uh, somewhat. I'm sure there's other things they enjoy than like like getting angry at you know immigrants. <laughs> but <laughs> but, um, but either way. So but yeah. So I hear you. And, and I was kind of I was just thinking about that as you're talking. Like wow, it's like we're moving into an era that's never been done, and that's incredibly mm-hmm. like. Uh, 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 a lot of amazing things can come out of that. And a lot of conflict can also come out of that. Right. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I think we're moving into an era where whether we want to or not, we're aware of the whole world. We're aware of all these cultures, all these languages and all these religions, all these ways of life. And so I think to, to like, whether we like it or not, you can't really just be in a, you can, but I don't think it's healthy to be in a little bubble and like see everything. Like you could be in a little Buddhist bubble or a little Christian bubble or whatever your little, like we, we're, we're constantly being forced to confront all these other bubbles out there. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's, that's good, but yeah, I think it's new. It's uncharted. It's, I guess one, one question I had for you, this is like shifting gears a little bit is like this idea of progress of evolution of development that yes. so many people today are, are driven by. It's really like, I mean, the scientific progress, technological progress is undeniable. Um, but when we contrast that with 
you know, something like ancient Buddhist philosophy and teachings and cultures, like they didn't have this idea of progress in the same way. It was more of a a cyclical idea rather than a linear progress idea. It was this idea of everything being cyclical, birth and death and rebirth. And and then, I mean, the kind of stereotypical view, I mean, I I realize the reality is a little bit more complex, but there was the idea that there's the circle of birth and rebirth that was suffering and then you wanted to be liberated from it. That was kind of the original Indian idea of liberation was actually stepping out of this world. You know, and this world would be talked about as like an illusion at times or mm-hmm. not real. Um, so I don't know, like, what your thoughts are of like progress. Like, where's the room for development, or or do you see that as part of an illusion? Like, we're just like, you know, I've talked to Buddhist teachers who are like, well, like the psychological situation of humans is the same now as it was twenty five hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's truth to that, but I think it's also kind of true to say, well, things are changing a lot, obviously. And in some ways, it's in some ways that's true. In some ways, it's not true. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I totally agree with you there. And and you know, uh, you know, we have this 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 way of working with uh, or categorizing things as relative and ultimate truth. And and just to me, this is the I find relative conditional you know, reality to be way more complex and confusing than ultimate truth. Not that saying I have some big, deep experience of emptiness or, or mm-hmm. ultimate truth, the way we describe it in Buddhism. Um, I don't, uh, but, but, you know, the complexities of, of systems and, and psychology and things shifting, you know, uh, subcultures under subcultures under subcultures and, you know, all of this, um, you know, I, I do agree with you just using that as a reference point um, that that's shifting all the time just due to mm-hmm. causes and conditions. And so, so yeah, I, I think the underlying framework of how we uh, uh, remain constricted in a sense of an autonomous, independent self, and then how that plays out with our needs according to that self, and usually those needs tend to contract into aversion and craving. I think that hasn't changed. Mm. Um, but the way it manifests and how it's engaged and how we are working through that, I think does through Mm. society and societies and culture and, and, um, uh, how humans think and, and work with the world. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I would say around that. And and as far as progress goes, yeah, this is really, I I always, I I think about this a lot (laughs) about progress (laughs) and I don't know how I feel in this moment, honestly, because I'm, I'm changing, like I said, like, I think my main practice right now is just kind of a radical self-inquiry practice. Mm. Um, of, of trying not to fix on ideas too much. Um, though as a, as a Dharma teacher, I have to say stuff and, you know, (laughs) in conversations, I have to say something. Uh, but I just want to say it, you know, uh, preface it with that, which is, but, but generally I feel, um, I have the question, I'm more of the notion that we're actually de-evolving. Really? Uh, Yeah. And, 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 I don't know how to put it. I would agree with your statement actually the most, which is more as a, as a circular process mm. where it's sort of like, it's not evolving or de-evolving. It's just su- simply just going around in a circle. So and, that's, and, that's such a different outlook than, than the idea of progress of like our children's lives will be better than our lives and democracy yeah. is better than monarchy and, you know, yeah, human and rights and, all, you know, I mean, <laughs> totally. yeah. And, and, and that's what I mean. Like, I can't, that's why I'm reticent to say like big statements because it depends on the sector we're talking about. Okay. Like when you're talking about um, human health and disease, we've evolved, right? Right. In there's a sense, we're like, progress. there's clear progress, and and to me, that's that's one area of of science or medical science, you know, science that as medical science, that I'm like, yeah, there's no doubt this this reduces human suffering, which is a very very good thing. Hmm. Um, I think what I meant is, um, you know, I don't know. Maybe I take that back. I, I don't know quite if we're devolving. I mean, that's why I said I, I used to say that, but I don't know if I believe that anymore. I, I think I believe a little bit more what you were saying around it being a circular process where it's just mm-hmm. sort of like when we're stuck in a pattern of, of uh, feeling and being this autonomous self that's disconnected and separate from others in subtler and more gross ways, we just circle in our, in our own, you know, uh, what we call the three poisons or craving, ignorance, and, and, and aversion. Right. Um, and and it, those just play out in different ways. And that's not an evolution or de-evolution. That's just kind of status quo until we connect more with our awakened nature and begin to shift out of that paradigm. So in Buddhism, we call evolution, you know, one reason I would say de-evolution is, is from a Buddhist perspective, every single being has Buddha nature, which is already, it's not 
evolved or de-evolved. It's completely, right. it's completely full. Uh, it's completely peaceful, awakened, and yet it's covered for us right now for, for, for most people. And so the process is to simply uncover that uh, through, you know, in my case, the Buddhist path or, or any path that would move us towards awakening. And so, so I guess like in one way you could say that's evolution from a Buddhist perspective, but it's not because it's just coming back home to what we already had. Mm. And, and we already have this very moment. We're just not recognizing it. So I think I see it, you know, but as far as like on a, on a societal level, um, yeah, I'm not sure if we're evolving because it seems, it seems like um, when the conditions increase for, for the self to become more rigid and stronger and more uh, cocooned and more constricted, um, then the, the um, uh, poisonous delusions or, or, you know, the, 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 we could just say disturbing emotions are going to increase and that's going right. to cause more, that's going to increase more conflict in the world. That's, and in that's that what sense, we're seeing. I think we are devolving. Is that the word? I think we are devolving a little bit. Yeah. I hate to, yeah. It's almost like we have, as long as we're being run by ignorance, if you then have greater technology, you're just going to use that technology for out of your ignorance rather than. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I'm open to, I think the world is vast <laughs> and, and, and sentient beings are vast and, I, I'm willing to be wrong there. And also uh, in the sense that maybe it's not so linear because it's, we could say it on an individual level too, as much as the conflict increases, there's also a chance to wake up because it's in your face. Like the, the mm. dukkha, as we say in Buddhism, the dissatisfaction or suffering isn't hidden anymore. Right. Like, boom, you know, it's, it's right. And then, and, and then a lot of people don't know what to do with that. And so there's stress reactivity and, and overwhelm increases and depression and anxiety. And some people are like, I want to know what to do with this. And they're, you know, I think this is one reason mindfulness has become so popular, you know? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well then, um, I know we don't have a ton of time, but <laughs> <laughs> another topic I wanted to go into you is this idea of, of what is true. <laughs> Basically like <laughs> yeah. you already mentioned ultimate truth kind of within Buddhism is emptiness or this like vast emptiness. And then relative truth is like this world of conditions that are conditioning that we experience, you know, yeah. objects and, and just this whole debate about uh, kind of about narratives, like what is true? Like we see it with Trump and politics all the time now, like people are literally coming up with their own truths <laughs> and it's just, it's very <laughs> yeah. confusing. Um, and then I don't know, this idea of like that we're creating our own reality. I don't know if just whatever you want to speak to it. I'm just sure. wanted to just like, I guess <laughs> the, the basic question I have, which is an ancient one, but like, is there like a, like, how do we talk about, about what is true that we're commonly experiencing? I mean, that would be one way to look at it, that we're, there's certain things that we all experience that we yeah. can't deny. Yeah, this is a huge uh, can of worms, so we'll see what, what comes <laughs> Yeah, it's out. a huge but, can of worms. No, and I love it. I mean, this is great. Um, uh, a, a can of worms and, a, you know, just like a gate into a lot of, I think, inquiry work. And so, hmm, you know, Generally, I just to simplify it without going into a lot of you know terminology and kind of like uh, you know technical speaking. I think it really has a lot to do with um, you kind of stated it already. Like we're having trouble organizing ourselves around truth right, right now. Um, I don't think that's new. Uh, that's always been the case. And I just look at this as like the relative you know, what I would talk about earlier about relative truth, it just means what appears to us, what, what, mm. what, what we're coming into contact with. And generally, um, as human beings, uh, we function by agreeing on or agreeing or having some kind of consensus on what that is. Right. Um, without, without that, it's hard to communicate. It's hard to do anything. Yeah. You can't do anything. And so, and so we're having kind of a consensus problem, uh, which isn't new. I mean, uh, politically, there's always consensus problems mm. uh, on social issues. There's also consensus issues. And so, again, I don't mean to relativize the whole thing, because I think one complaint Buddhism gets lately is like when we start to talk about ultimate truth, which is an extremely deep topic that's not simple. And it's not something you're just going to we're going to grasp by somebody <laughs> saying a few sentences or or even in, in one you know talk. Yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, yeah it, it, to me, it's something that, you know, uh, we have to let go of our our drive of what our bias and our lens of how we're interpreting what we're hearing mm. and and be open enough to and be generous enough to think, oh, 
interesting. I'm not sure I agree with that because of this. Now let's ask a question instead of saying a statement, you know, mm. that's kind of how I'm trying to live more personally. And I think that can help some of the division. Per, uh, you know, I don't want to get off on a side topic, but just, I wanted to say that. Um, so, so, you know, basically truth is consensus. Um, well, let me, it, let me frame it a little bit differently. Um, sure. Cause I, I agree with you, but I just, I'm going to try to, the, the common sense understanding that, that we have, that people have in general, is that there is this objective reality happening, and then you can have different interpretations of it. But there yeah. is something out there that happened. Like, either you said this or you didn't, or, you know, there's a pile of rocks there, and we can say it's a mountain, or we can say it's a hill, or, you know, whatever, but there's something there. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, and so, and I get where you're going. So, yeah, in Buddhism, we definitely investigate whether... Uh, that something in there, that something there is uh, independent, autonomous, and permanent. Mm. And so when we say the term emptiness, which I like to explain when I use that term, especially when I don't know who's listening, um, it doesn't mean nothingness. Uh, it doesn't mean empty in the sense of a vacuity. It means empty of existing autonomously. Sing, uh, sometimes we put throw in singular, um, independent, and uh, 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 what did I say? Permanent, mm. right? And so... Uh, it's an emptiness of that. So, you know, for example, when we do look at a rock, not only are, are different people going to have different interpretations of that rock. Some might find it beautiful. Some might find it ugly. Right. Some might, you know, have spiritual beliefs around that rock. Some might, you know, use it, you know, to hammer a nail. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we can see within it, there's not really an objective reality in the rock. Mm. Right. Um, and, and not only that, the rock itself doesn't exist in a permanent way. So what we label rock is also is made of parts. Uh, it changes. It moves. Um, it leans on other other parts of the rockness. It leans on a, a, an east side and a west side, and and a rock in relation to a to a flower. Right. Mm. So in Buddhism, we explore this as an open inquiry, not as a statement to say like you have to believe this or or this is the way it is. It's more uh, an inquiry into that nature so we can find more freedom and flexibility in our experience. Mm. Um, on the same level, it's not a denial that, uh, there, that relative truth functions and that there are things that, that cause harm and things that don't. Right. So the Buddha recognized that, and that's why there's systems of um, ethics. Mm. So I think this is a, a tough one for a lot of people because it's tough. It's not like an easy thing to grasp that when you look for something, you can't find it objectively, but it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Right. Mm. I like and that. This, yeah. yeah. And we call this the dance or Sonia Ramsey calls this dance of ultimate and relative truth. Mm. Uh, Cause ultimately we are trying to unify them as a Buddhist, but we, we usually do that by recognizing the, the, uh, uh, the play of relative truth, that it's not a fixed permanent independent reality. Right. Hmm. Right. It's not something fixed. We can have different ways of perceiving it. Um, I don't know what, I guess in terms of the consensus, like there's maybe, maybe a function as a way to look at it. Like if, yeah. if you understand relative truth more, more truthfully and more deeply, then it should have greater effects in the world. And if you're just living in the realm of imagination, like, Oh, I'm just going to pretend like that rock's not there at all. Yeah. I mean, that, that's not really honest, first of all. And second of all, that's not relative no. truth. Like there's an appearance there that exactly. has effects in the world. This is the yeah. point where I feel like some spiritual uh, kind of teachings go off. And also in politics, we're kind of like losing track. We're losing track of what is this relative truth and how to talk about it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and that's, that's like I was saying, because first of all, <laughs> it doesn't exist in a fixed way. And, and so like, you know, so then... I think what we're losing track of is like a human consensus on what, what uh, are the causes for just relative happiness. You mm. know? We're not talking about enlightenment here. Just, just what's going to um, uh, provide a space for humans to, and, and animals and other beings who we share this world with to not die <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and to, to have a home and, yeah. and all of that. But I don't think this is a new problem. I mean, in the sense of this disagreement on consensus, because human beings, um, you know, uh, from a Buddhist perspective, as long as we we view the self in an autonomous, independent way, we're going to experience 
um, preferences and biases, and those biases are going to feed into disagreement and eventually conflict. So I think it's more like, you know, how to hold disagreement. Um, that's where the power of, of what would be authentic democracy, which I've never seen acted out except for in indigenous mm -hmm. traditions. There's an indigenous tradition in Northern Colombia called the Kogi that I've yeah. interacted with. And they, um, they, when they hold councils uh, for decisions, they they go on for days because they can't, they don't make a decision until the whole community agrees upon it. Uh, so they work it out through dialogue and through, it's going to take a long time. Exactly. I mean, in the modern world, forget about it. You know, no, no one has patience for that, but, <laughs> but, but nonetheless, I think, I think that kind of way is, is quite, quite a advanced way of working hmm. uh, on a connected communal level. Um, yeah. I, don't I guess, know. I guess part of my point is the distinction between imagination and relative truth. I mean, and I guess I see imagination as part of relative truth, but it's it's not it the same as, I don't know, I want to be able to make a distinction between a rock and like my imagination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's where I think the word function. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah, that's where it comes in. And you're right, like in, in when we study middle way teachings or any kind of deep uh, teachings on the nature of reality in Buddhism, there's a distinction between a rock and a dream and a rock hmm. uh, on a certain level. Um, ultimately, sort of not, but you know, there there is some function here um uh, that we we do have to describe and and that's important and i think you know that's where we we don't get into these kind of universals and and where we you know we have this phrase in buddhism where, where um uh you let me see if i can remember it uh it's basically like losing the view and the conduct and losing the conduct in the view oh yeah and so conduct here relates to like how we integrate our perspectives into the world and how we show up with compassion, love, and uh, connection to reduce harm and, mm. and hopefully eliminate it if we can. Um, and the view is what informs that. And so losing the conduct and the view is going too much to the ultimate and not recognizing that we have to work in the relative world and we have to engage with that in a healthy way as much as we can. Losing the, the what did I say, losing the, losing the view and the conduct is getting so rigid about what the relative world is and making it so tight that there's no flexibility to see beyond our bias. Mm. Yeah. No. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah, I found that helpful for me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, I guess, I mean, I guess part of it needs to be recognizing and appreciating other people's experience. You know, if someone... Exactly is reporting their experience, their feelings, then you need to honor that and take it into account. And, um, yeah, I don't know what I'm, yeah. No, it's all good. I, I I'm having fun kind of just trying to, you. <laughs> just trying to work it out a little bit. No, I, I think this is where like we can float back to the beginning of our conversation, which is, uh, to be interconnection and just the basics of how, because Buddha nature, from a Buddhist perspective, what is inherent or innate to sentient beings as their awakened state, it doesn't function in a bubble and it doesn't function autonomously or independently. Right. So, and it's because, it, because it's a natural part of us, we also seek it out. So here's where I think the idea of religion and secular life can, doesn't have to become separate. Because when you recognize just there's a fundamental, I don't want to call it an essence because it makes it sound like a thing, but there's fundamental ground or something to that that we share in common with our minds and our experiences and 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 you know what we are essentially um when we connect with that and we, you know we're we want to be moving towards that but when we connect with that we're happier and we get along more and there's less conflict hmm. so it's sort of like i look at the buddhist path a lot more like that these days where, where this buddha nature this this innate uh potential for awakening is not a is not a state it's not a it's not an attainment. It's more like um, what we're already trying to work out. We're just really confused about how to bring that about, you know? Right. There's yeah. something in us that, that is drawn towards that and that wants that. And Exactly. And, 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 yeah. and I think a lot of that is expressed in connection. Hmm. I mean, there's a reason, you know, romantic relationship is, is such a huge thing in our world. And in, in, in the, our most profound emotional experiences can come and our most you know destructive and <laughs> you know painful uh emotional right. experiences can yeah. come about in that because i think it's like we're seeking that that unification 
Right. Um, but, but not realizing it's, it's really a unification with a self that, uh, you know, I hate to say it's a unification with self because it's not, it's like a unification beyond self and other. Mm. Um, and so I find that, yeah, that's where I think in one way it can be quite simplified where it's like, we can, we can go around putting out all these fires or we can address the main issue, which is, which is connection and, and, you know, referencing ourselves in the world as not an individual, but as part of a, a community and then training and serving others more, you know? Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. And I think it can use a lot of different kinds of language to describe something, the same thing, basically. Totally. Uh, yeah. Food to nature or however you want to talk about it. Yeah. I liked uh, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche's basic goodness. I think it's quite a, quite a good term to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Something inherent, yeah. something that we, that we already possess, that we already have. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to be uh, aware of your time. Um, it's been great having you on here. Yeah, thanks, Julian. This is awesome. I, I feel like we could go on for hours. <laughs> <laughs> Realize talking to you, it's tricky to talk about this idea of relative truth and what it really is, but I appreciate the, the effort. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a big world. I, I'm happy to continue on it because it's, um, it's, it's a big one. And I think, I think it's really vital for our understanding because just maybe to close out on that real quick because I wanted to say something I forgot, hmm. which is around lenses. Like I think a lot of relative truth understanding is starting to understand that that we do have subjective lenses and, and meditation is a way to start to become more aware of those. And so we can make wiser, more compassionate, more interconnected choices. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think that's just a skillful means for a Buddhist or non-Buddhist uh, to start working with. And um, so, yeah, that's one thing I wanted to say is it does have a lot to do with lenses and we have our collective lenses, mm-hmm. like our human lenses and then and group lenses. And then we have our individual ones, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's super important. No. Just, just being able to acknowledge and appreciate that about yourself can be really healing because then you're like, oh yeah, I was seeing things in this certain way or from this I, certain place. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm just, I'm just in love with, with inquiry work right now. And, and I'd love to talk more about that. I didn't say so much about that, but uh, yeah. Hmm. Another time. Another time. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> good. Well, thanks yeah, so, so much thanks for being you. on. Yeah. Yeah. And if people want to, um, you, know, you know, hear more what I do, I have, I have a, I don't have a podcast like yours. I have a, um, uh, a website with, um, and an iTunes with basically I put my Dharma talks up there. Got a lot Um, of resources up there. Yeah. And and a blog. I got a newsletter. If people want to, do you want to say the name of your website? Yeah. It's just my name, scotttusa.com. So, um, S C O T T T U S A.com. And, um, yeah, sign up for my newsletter if you want. Um, and I do workshops all over the place worldwide now and, uh, work with people one-to-one. So reach out. Thanks so much, Julian. If you found this podcast valuable, there are many ways that you can support it. You can blog about it, post about it on your social media accounts and share it with friends. You can visit our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash a state of mind. And you can leave us a review in your favorite podcast listening app. For episode notes and more information and links, please visit astateofmindplay.com. And to learn more about my work as a therapist, meditation teacher, and coach, visit julianocean.us. Thanks so much, and I will see you here next time.